Welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. This promises to be a good one. My friend Dennis Fisher, editor-in-chief over at Decipher, a new security news website uh, coming out of the guys at Duo. How are you, Dennis? I'm doing great, man. How are things over in uh, Phoenix? Is it like 98 degrees yet? It's pushing 90. Um, we're heading into spring, um, bracing for the summer, which can be obscene, but we'll see. Well, you grew up on the equator, so I'm not worried about you. Yeah, and there's no humidity here. Where I grew up, it was 95 every day with 100% humidity, so we'll we'll cope. Yeah, you'll be fine. This heat is no joke, though. If you go to, uh, for the people listening to the podcast, if you go to Black Hat uh, for uh, summer hacker camp uh, in August, this is what my summer here in Phoenix looks like, and it's brutal. I don't want to hear it. I'm not. Please, we're like we barely. We had snow two days ago in Massachusetts, so you know. I I I don't miss that. I was just <laughs> no. over the winter when I left New York to move out here. Yeah, it's terrible. It's we don't have spring here. It's just like in June, all of a sudden it'll be summer. That's it. Listen, you and I have podcasted probably a hundred times before, but one of the things that I've I've never gotten into with you is. I don't want to psychoanalyze, but go back into your uh, childhood and see how that kind of played a role into your uh, eventual uh, uh, career in journalism and more specifically security. Uh, you grew up in in the D.C. area, correct? Yeah, in Northern Virginia. Yep. And if I understand it correctly, your dad was a scientist or was already in STEM or was he worked at IBM and was in in the technology space. Yeah, that's right. My dad um, worked at IBM for 25 years, and uh, before that, he was in the Army. Uh, did kind of the same stuff in the Army that he did when, first when he got to IBM. He did a bunch of uh, – he's a systems engineer, so he worked on a whole bunch of different projects, mostly defense contract stuff when he was at IBM. So stuff you uh, can't talk about. Yeah, exactly. I have very little – knowledge of exactly what he did at IBM. I have a general idea, just like worked on some missile programs, worked on a bunch of classified stuff. And then, um, you know, and my, my mom was an elementary school teacher and then a principal um, for, man, 40 years or something like that. And um, she taught science, she taught math, she taught religion, she taught a bunch of different stuff. And so, you know, like, my dad studied physics, so he was very, very like science oriented, and that rubbed up not one bit on me or my sisters. So, like, you know. Yeah, but that's uh, interesting. But you, you, you remember uh, computers around the house? Pre, oh yeah, pre-computer days. Absolutely. So the first machine we had, I was probably seven or eight. And this would have, it was probably right around 1980, 1981. I'd have to check whenever it came out. But we had an Apple IIe. Um, this was before like the IBM PCs came out. And, you know, the the IIe looked like a, almost, it, it was an all-in-one thing. And it didn't have a monitor. So you had a, we had a little black and white TV that sat on top of it. And all I remember is like playing super basic like games on it. Like I remember something called Lemonade Stand. And it's like, I think there was maybe a, like a, a maze game or something like that. But then later on, once the PCs came out, you know, my dad got, would get like a nice employee discount. So we had like 
the original IBM PC and later on like the XTs and the ATs and, and stuff like that. But yeah, we were also, you know, and I, he taught me how to like program in basic and, and stuff like that when I was a kid, um, which I thought would be useful, but you know, 10 years later was totally useless. So <laughs> uh, were you a naturally bright kid uh, or, or I'm not saying you're not naturally bright. I'm saying were, were you one of those like naturally bright kids or were you uh, uh, like me running around outside, tossing rocks at cars and running away? I was doing Instead both of, of learning those. to program. Yeah, yeah, I was doing both of those things. So I, I guess I was probably, I, I wasn't a good student, but I always got good grades. Um, so like all the way up through, you know, school, I did really, really well without trying very hard, uh, which my parents would always frustrated them. Absolutely. You know? I got it with my kids now. Yeah, exactly. So once, uh, once I figured out that like I could get, you know, pretty much straight A's, maybe a B here and there without like killing myself, like that's what I did. You know, of course, you know, you're 12 years old, that's what you're going to do. But, um, yeah, I was definitely running around and doing stupid crap as well. I mean, that's that's what you do when you're a kid, right? Right. And you you also got into sports, so you got a soccer scholarship. Yeah, yeah I, I played a lot of soccer when I was a kid. Um, that was my thing. That's what I, you know, that's all I wanted to do. Um, and that's what I thought I was going to do in college. And then I, I, my senior year in high school, I destroyed my knee, like, I think in either the second or third game of our season. Um and that was kind of the end of that. I didn't end up playing in college, but you know, I played on club teams and stuff like that and still played like as an adult uh, on you know some indoor and some pickup games and stuff like that. And you and I have played some soccer games on some beaches in the in the Caribbean over the years that were uh, we played, pretty... come on. We, we represented the media in the hot cup at, uh, at oh, Black Hat for several <laughs> years. The media whores. We did. Me and you and what, Charlie and... Um, yeah, I have uh, a, I have a, the, the, I have the, I don't know if you call it Wait, a Jack. record, ignominious record of uh, uh, tackling Charlie Miller and puff, puffing up his 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 ankle into oh, the size right. of a into the size of a grapefruit. <laughs> that's right. That was a fun tournament. I saw. I, I wish Dave would do that again. That was a good time. That we was always do it. Fun. Let's do it ourselves. Why do we have to wait on Dave? We should ping him yeah. and, and sync up and try to get it going again. We could wait forever. Although I do remember one of those first years that, remember we were warming up and somebody tore their uh, like, Achilles. Yeah, yeah. Had to be wheeled out of the room. God. This is what happens when 40-year-old hackers try to be like athletic. <laughs> Yeah, right, when they're dehydrated on a Friday at the end of Black Hat. That's right. Stephen Ridley might still have some great photographs of those those tournaments. He used to show up at his big camera. And, uh, oh, that's right. Camera. He did, yeah. Yeah. So th there's probably some really, really good ones, yeah. So c c coming out of college, did you know you were going to be a journalist? Was that like uh, a f uh, an automatic feel for you that this is what I enjoy, this is what I like doing, this is what I'm good at? Because I know you went into journalism pretty early in your career. Yeah, definitely. That's that's all I wanted to do. I that's kind of all you've ever done, anyway. It is. Yeah. I when I was in high school, I took a journalism class, and I think maybe my junior year, and the teacher was this really like the guy was probably in like his mid sixties. He had, you know he had probably worked in journalism for like thirty or forty years or something, and was just this super grizzled like bitter old guy that like smoked fifty cigarettes a day and like you know smelled terrible and. But, stereotype yeah 100 like 
if you walked into a newsroom in like the mid 1980s, that's what you would have seen was this dude. Um, and he like, he, for whatever reason, decided that I was going to be like his pet project. I don't really know why. Like I must have written something that was halfway decent. And he was just like, okay, you can do this. So we're going to turn you into a writer. And I was, I always like to read and, you know, I tried writing creative stuff in school, you know, it was probably terrible. I'm sure when I was like 15 or whatever, but, um, once I got like, you know, you get on like the high school newspaper, you go cover a couple football games or whatever. It's like, Oh, this is fun. You know, like I get to be creative, write a few hundred words, you know, you talk to people. It's, it's a fun gig. Um, and so I, I figured that's exactly what I wanted to do. And then I got a, after college, I got a job at the newspaper in my little town in Virginia, um, that, you know, the circulation was probably like 12,000 daily or something. It was an afternoon newspaper, which was still a thing back then. Um, and I was covering like the police beat. So going to like the courts every day and talk to the cops and, you know, going to fires and shootings and whatever, um, which I loved. It was kind of like security because it was something different every day. It wasn't like going to city council meetings or whatever. It was well, a lot got, of... you got to tell yeah. the real story. Your, your biggest story in, of that time. Uh, I don't know how deep we want to get into that story, but uh, <clears throat> so there's two things that people know about the town that I grew up in, which is Manassas. What in it, you can, I can always tell like what kind of person I'm talking to when I tell them that I'm from Manassas, they, they either know it for one or two things. One is like the civil war. So there were two civil war battles in that town, the, the battles of bull run. So there's a big, you know, battlefield there and like national park and all that historical site and that kind of thing. So a lot they of people do recreation and stuff there. Oh yeah. Yes, absolutely. Okay. yes. They do all that stuff there, which I thought was hilarious when I was a kid. I thought it was the funniest thing on earth grown ass men like running around in like wool uniforms in the middle of July in Virginia, you know, like shooting each other with cap guns. I was like, what are you doing? Um, but so that's the one thing. And the other thing that people might know about Manassas is that that's where the John Bobbitt, uh, incident happened. Yeah. Yeah. That's where that happened. And so <clears throat> when I was a kid growing up, not a kid, but in high school, the, guy that ran the the i guess he was the chief of police or maybe the the second in command in my town was um one of my best friend's dads so i knew him really well and after i got out of school and i was you know writing about uh police stuff for the newspaper i was talking to him all the time you know i'd see him at meetings or whatever around town i knew him real well and so when the john bobbitt thing happened <clears throat> he i happened to be at his house I was, I think I was shooting pool with, uh, with my buddy down in the basement and he got the call. It, it was actually in the next town over there's Manassas and there's Manassas park, which are two separate towns, but they kind of share. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he got the call and he, he was like, Hey Dennis, come on, we're going to go for a ride. I was like, uh, all right, man. So we went and you know, this is 19, man, I'd have to look 94 maybe something like that. I can't even remember the, the year, but um, he was like, let's go. So we went and so you're in the police car. Yeah, I think it was his personal car, but we went and they were actually doing a search. So this is like maybe a couple hours after this had happened and people can look up the details on this. I don't want to 
you know, the details were pretty gross, but we don't fact check. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, if you say John Bobbin, like a quick Google search will tell you what happened, but they were doing a search through this vacant lot for the missing appendage for the missing They're literally just scouring like walking, the side yep. of the road for this thing that was thrown out of a car window. That's correct. And so that's what they were doing. It was like a, you know, kind of late at night, maybe even the middle of the night. I don't even remember, but. That's hilarious. That's Get hilarious. there. And so just, I, yeah. I just, just kind of like hung back. I was like, I don't really want to find this or even be there when it's found. You know, it's just like, I, I think I'll, I'll be over here. Like I, I'm going to go to the Hardee's across the street and you know, y'all let me know what happens. And, uh, it, the, the bigger thing was like later on, whenever the trial happens, uh, like his wife, who I, th I think her name was Lorena. Lorena, yeah. There was a trial, you know, maybe two years later, or a year later, or whenever it was, um, for her. And it was a huge tabloid thing. So all these like national reporters from the New York Times and New Yorker magazine and, uh, you know, the national media were all over our tiny little town, which has like 30,000 people in it. And, you know, they were at this at this trial every day. And there was like Gay Talese was there. There were all these like really well-known writers that were just hanging around this courthouse um, the whole time, which was really weird. Bonkers especially for a little town, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. So fast forward, how did you wend your way into writing about not necessarily technology because you specialize in when I when we first met uh, when I joined eWeek from internetnews.com you were already the chief security beat writer if you want to call it that on the magazine I joined to work on eWeek and the online section which were separate at the time for yeah. God knows what reason um, yeah because you're you're covering crime and you're interested in covering sports or whatever and then you you was that was that your first gig in the security space yeah, it was. So I got to eWeek in 2000 and it was, I got hired to cover <laughs> the, possibly the most boring beat of all time, which was messaging. So I was writing about email and messenger and AOL and interoperability. And yes. Yeah. I was writing about like Novell groupware and, uh, you know, Microsoft Exchange, it wasn't even Outlook back then, um, and Lotus Notes. Mm -hmm. And it was the most boring thing on earth. But eWeek, it was still PC Week when I got hired. But it was a huge magazine. Like the newsroom that we had up here, there was probably like 30 full time reporters, like including the labs folks and editors. And like there was a huge writing staff there, really, you know, really, really good reporters there. Yeah, PC Week was the standard at the time for any yeah. from consumer to enterprise. Everything uh, computing at the time was, you know, yes. everyone wanted to be in PC Week. The reviews were not only very well done, but very well received and and respected. Right. Yeah, it was it was a big deal. I mean, I remember like Mark Cuban came into our office like when he still owned Broadcast.com before he sold it to Yahoo. He came in there for a briefing and like. I didn't, nobody knew who he was then. He was just in there to talk to the editors about whatever this thing was, like TV on the internet. We we're like, oh, yeah, that's going to work. Good job, buddy. Right. Uh, 
<laughs> it seems to have worked out pretty well for him. But it's so funny looking back. I was actually going through some old Ewig magazines. I had saved some of my first covers and so on. I was going through some yeah. Ewig magazines, and it's so interesting that a lot of the, a lot of the same big companies and big stories you're writing about now had its roots in those early days. I was reading about like Vindigo and location-based advertising based on uh, an app on your smartphone. And uh, I can't remember the name of the service, but it's exactly what the iPhone is now today with Google Maps showing you a, a, a a store nearby or You'd be on Facebook and it'll pop up something that says if you're in Cancun, Mexico, or you're, oh, there are here three restaurants around you. I remember yeah. writing about that stuff in 2003 about small New York companies that wanted to, uh, that were way ahead of, of, of the time. The yeah. broadband hadn't caught up yet. Cell phones didn't do data yet. So they were struggling with, you know, figuring out the connectivity part. But what the iPhone looks like today were uh, things that we were writing about in the early 2000s with people trying to figure out that stuff. Even this, even the, even the enterprise messaging thing you're talking about has, has evolved into Slack and uh, a lot of oh, the messaging definitely. tools we use today. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, that. so that's the kind of stuff that I was writing about. And, like, right after, um, like, around the, the end of my first year, the guy that was covering security for us, Scott Baronado, who was one of the best writers that I've ever worked with, he left to go to CIO magazine, I think. And at the time, the security beat was kind of like a backwater, like nothing was happening. It was like, you'd write about, you know, these VB script viruses and the DDoS attacks against like eBay and that kind of stuff. And so the beat was open and I went to my editor and I was like, Hey, is anybody going to pick up this security beat? Because I had, I had done some stories with Scott because of like the crossover with like the email viruses and stuff. Right. And I really loved it. I was like, oh, this is cool. This is fun. So you asked for it. I asked for it. And uh, my editor, Scott Peterson, who you know, was like, mm-hmm. eh, nobody else wants it. I guess you can have it. And I was pretty low down the totem pole. There was a bunch of other senior reporters. And he was like, yeah, nobody else really wants it. You can have it. I was like, great. That's awesome. Funny. So. You know, and that I I got the beat handed to me because I was the most junior person and no one wanted it. Uh, The guy who was writing about security for I started out at that New York just covering startups and uh, little New York companies trying to build the Silicon Alley. We were oh right, yeah. Remember Silicon Valley was the thing, and then a bunch of guys in New York decided the Silicon Alley was also going to be a thing. Uh, a bunch of VCs popped up, and I was covering dot coms, and um, right around the time of the bust as well. And the guy who was writing about security left, and and no one wanted it. It was kind of the boring backwater beat that no one cared about. And it was dumped on me because I was the most junior person. And I was like, well, I didn't have a choice. I yep. don't know if I liked it at the time, but within a year, uh, there was Blaster, Sasser, and I knew that this was pretty cool beat to have. Yeah, that's exactly what happened to me because, you know, so that was probably the end of 2000 when, um, when I took that over. And then, you know, the... Within a couple of years, probably within the next year, I have to go back and look where a bunch of those worms, you know, Code Red, Blaster, Sasser, that kind of stuff. And then, um, you know, then that right morphed that, into TWC. That's uh, right. The trustworthy the memo. Yeah. yeah. I can remember when that happened. I was, you know, our, our deadlines for the print magazine at eWeek were on Thursday mornings. Or, you know, the deadline was, I think, around 11 on Thursday. 
and that memo would come out overnight. And, you know, I got to work and looked at my email and somebody that I knew at Microsoft had sent it to me, had sent me the Bill Gates memo. And I had like, you know, whatever story I was working on for the book that week, you know, we just tore it up and wrote about that memo. And I, I want to say that was 2003. I'm not 100% sure. It was right around that time. Because I, yeah. I remember the dates too, because um, I used to hold my quote-unquote big stories for Wednesday night so that you guys would see it and, and, and pop a, a little box into the magazine because we had no right. communication between online and the book at the time. It was None. two completely separate teams, two completely separate editors and editorial teams, and, and I always wanted to have my name in the book, so it was just timing my story at a time where you guys would just, you know, cut a little box and put like a late-breaking thing. That's right, because you, you guys were all in New York and we were here in Boston. Correct. And I remember I never quite I, understood that, but oh, I don't. It was some weird Ziff Davis thing. I, you know, you, you guys, there were other um, like magazines based here for a while. Like we had Baseline and some other stuff that was in the same ZD office here. And you guys had a bunch of other reporters there too, right? Like not just the online. Yeah, we had we, the, the weird thing is that we we also had guys covering enterprise messaging. We had guys covering security. We had we were yeah, just like, duplicating efforts for the same company. Right. And I, I remember the first time I I think I ever met you was at RSA. And like I ran into you in the hallway or something or maybe in the press room. And um, it was probably around that time, like 2004 or something like that. And they eventually merged the newsrooms. Yeah, they became did. became my boss. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then – but it, it just made no sense. But that tells you like how nobody – still people haven't figured out like what to do with – you know, online versus print. And this is 15 years later, you know, there's still a bunch of large publishers, not even just tech trying to figure that out. And they, very few people have gotten a, a handle on it, I think. Yeah, things have moved, things have changed dramatically. I think this, uh, Paul Roberts called it democratization of media with just with mm -hmm. the availability of Twitter and especially Twitter, but, uh, you know, other platforms yeah. that allow people to brand themselves and become household names as independent one-man media operations has been really interesting. Um, yeah. you, and I, you and I joined forces later on, created Threat Post, kind of built that out before I left. You guys with, with Mike Mimosa really built it out and, and turned that into a successful project. I want to talk about your new project, Decipher. Yeah. Duo.com slash Decipher. What were those conversations like uh, with... Uh, I'm guessing with John and Doug and and the folks over at Duo to uh, do this differently because you're yeah. obviously doing it differently. You guys are doing deep dives, longer form kind of feature writing, building uh, these kind of uh, uh, long form writing, which which is one of the downsides of this democratization of media. Is everyone is going for quick hits and 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 uh, you know a Twitter scoop, and no one is doing deep dives anymore, which is one of the things, you know, I applaud you for. Uh, yeah. Thanks, man. It, yeah, that that's a big part of, like, one of the main themes in, the, in all those conversations with John O and Doug and um, Pete Baker and Meredith Corley and, and Famita and the, the whole team that helped build the site was, um, you know, we wanted this to be different. We wanted to take a different approach to security journalism because there's already a lot of outlets out there that are doing the day-to-day -day kind of, you know, those news stories that you and I wrote for a long, you know, 15 years. Um, that information is out there. We wanted to get a little deeper, show people behind the scenes, 
why these stories matter. Um, you know, John and Doug, a big part of their thing on this is they wanted to help democratize security. You were talking about democ democratization of media. They're interested in democratizing security and making it more accessible for everybody, not just for experts. What does you that know, mean, though? Kind of like helping people understand the basics of security and why these kind of things matter. You know, you have something like, um, you know, I wrote a piece this week about these malicious crypto miners that are, you know, doing in-browser mine for Monero, you know. You go to a site that's compromised, your browser gets hijacked, and they, you know, they start mining uh, cryptocurrency in the background, um, which, you know, is for most people, they'd be like, I don't even know what most of that means. Why do I care? Why does this matter to me? It doesn't seem like it's doing anything bad to my machine, you know, but you want to help explain that to people and why it's why that matters or why this Cambridge Analytica story matters to their privacy and, you know, why they should be concerned that this data is being shared without their knowledge in some cases and all that kind of stuff. So the goal is to kind of give people a better understanding of why these really technical security concepts matter to them and kind of demystify a bunch of it for people. You know, for us, like you and I, we're writers same with Mita. Mita's got a technical background that, that you and I don't have but we kind of learn this stuff as we went right like you just you find as many smart people as you can and you learn from them and that's how you know that's how I learn I know that's how you learn too but for you know the typical consumer audience somebody that's not in the the tech field at all or even the regular enterprise audience that they don't maybe understand everything about technology they might not understand why a normal data breach story matters to them or why uh, these other privacy stories matter to them. So that's kind of the, the approach we're taking to it. Do you find that, do you find that, or do you worry that attention span uh, has waned to the point where uh, people are just looking for quick hits these days? The majority of the audience is uh, on Twitter consuming their media on these short form things that your, 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 your goal in these kind of deep dive pieces or uh, what the audience just doesn't have the attention span for it. That's what I would worry about. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, not everything that we're writing is super long. I mean, you know, typical piece is probably 700 words or something like that. Um, but yeah, I, I do kind of worry about that. And I think everybody does because even if like, it does seem like if you can't fit your, your, thesis into a you know a two-sentence tweet then people aren't that interested but there's a lot of you know larger picture things that people need to really get their hands you know their hands on get their arms around especially in security which is you know become such a mainstream concern these days so it's important i'll tell you why this long-form stuff is important and maybe you, you'll take this as some advice to just kind of put your head shoulder to the wheel and keep going uh, I, I had a, I was listening to a podcast with David Axelrod and Condoleezza Rice, and they were talking about like all the upheaval at the State Department, and you know a lot of career career Foreign Service officers leaving. Mm -hmm. And she mentioned uh, 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 the the big loss of institutional memory, and I I found this really it connected with me because I'm reading a lot of security news reporting from a lot of really good journalists, but new to the beat. 
mm-hmm. a, a lot of the folks who are, 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 are very active now are relatively new to the beat and they're writing stories without the institutional memory or they're just incapable of, through no fault of theirs, they're relatively new to the beat, but not understanding that we've written these stories before or there's a, there's a historical precedent or a backdrop to these stories. And it's it's largely missing in security because a lot of us have left the, the, the space. Um, even the ones who uh, are still writing, they're just so grinding on some of the smaller things and trying to, you know, earn a living. Uh, Paul Roberts, Krebs, and you know, a bunch of guys doing independent media as well. Yeah. And 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 these kinds of deep dive long form with the institutional memory and historical uh, uh, approach is crucial. I, I believe it's crucial. I mean, I, I, your your piece on the loft. I had known that story for all my life. I've known about those guys. I, you know, p- became friends with a few of those guys over the years. Uh, but your your um, what was it called? The oral history. The oral history of the loft. Yeah. Still learned. Still learned a few things, and w- it was still very very well done. So props for that. It was very very well done and really really interesting. Thanks, man. Uh, so I think this kind of journalism is is desperately needed, even though attention span has waned and, and your audience might not be as big as it should be. But I think there are enough people interested or enough people that need this kind of reporting. So um, I'm yeah. really looking forward to what you guys are putting out. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, that's the goal. You know, we a lot of that is kind of there's all these stories, you know, we were talking about one that, you know, we won't go into a, a week or so ago uh, over text that, you know, is a story we need to tell sometime, but we need to find a way into it. Um, and But there's a lot of these stories that just kind of need to uh, be put down on paper so that people, so they don't, so they're not forgotten. You know, there, there's a bunch of these that I kind of have in my, in my head of, you know, profiles of folks I want to do or um, kind of, look back type pieces that you just want to tell the whole story behind something that you know you know like uh like there are bits and pieces of stories everywhere but they haven't been packaged into yeah it's like making a documentary on 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 something historical right yeah i mean it was cool with like the loft thing that even some of the guys like our our friend chris ang who knows those lot has known those guys for 20 years you know um there was a couple stories in that oral history where he's like, oh my God, I had no idea about this. You know, like I, I think the story about like uh, Dill Dog sitting in a class at MIT and the teacher put up his IE4 exploit on the on the overhead projector and it was like, I, all right, I want you guys to study this. And they yeah, had no, that was crazy. <laughs> Dill Dog was in the class, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know Katie Masuri was a teenager was hanging around in those circles. Oh, yeah. a 15 year old, that's yeah. like, so <laughs> I, I really, really enjoyed that. And I thought you did it very well. And I think this oral history approach is, is, is a good way to do. It's yeah, like I said, it's like a mini documentary in text. Yeah. And it's super fun to do. Like, you know, just the. the... I have so many ideas for them. I'll share them with you offline. Oh, good. I have so many yeah. ideas for these oral histories that are, you know, some of the biggest stories that I enjoyed writing at the time. And one thing that bums me out today is that I, I think they call it link rot. Where, yeah, uh, like eWeek's website has been redone a bunch of times, and I can't find some really fun feature stories I had written. They're just dead. The links are just dead. And yep. I'm using Wayback Machine to go searching for things that I wrote in the past, and that's a big, big bummer. So, I know. Yeah, there's um in, in my office at home here. I've got like this stack, like you were mentioning, of old hard copies of eWeek with some of the 
you know, cover stories that I did. And, but cause like, there's no way to find those online. You know, it's just, it's impossible. And if you did find them, it would like have 7,000 pop-ups on top of it. You'd never be able to read it anyway. So, um, you know, I have boxes of like actual hard copies of magazines. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with them, but you know, I'm not throwing them away. I'm going to make a museum one day. <laughs> it would be the saddest museum on earth. Well, what are you, um, you know, most excited about as you look at the security space? Because we've, we've, we've been through these trends, these up and down trends. We mentioned the, the TWC memo, and then mm-hmm. it became security reporting became all about what Microsoft was doing around XP Service Pack 2 and, you know, turning on automatic updates by default and making it... Uh, uh, turning on a firewall by default, and and Microsoft's push through security over the years. And, you know, we talked recently. Shout out to Step to RIP uh, oh, yeah. about you know just being so connected to everything Microsoft was doing for a period of five or six years. That became the beat. Whatever Microsoft was doing became the beat, and yes. and and now that has kind of waned. What are what are some uh, trends? Some things you're seeing. Uh, that you, you you feel will be the big story moving forward or the big stories set of stories moving forward well there's a couple like there's a few i mean there a million things happening i mean you yeah can, you, you can start at the high end with some of the nation states spying stuff which is a whole that, bit on its own that's what i was gonna say all like, the way down to the basics right yeah i mean i i've done a bunch of reporting on that nation state stuff um i know you were you've got plenty of uh experience dealing with that kind of stuff too um when you were kaspersky and that stuff to me is really fascinating because there's so much of that going on and it's been going on for you know 30 years that stuff like if you go back and read cliff Stahl's book the cuckoo's egg mm-hmm. that's exactly what was going on then i and, actually remember a conversation you and i had on on the escalator at black hat uh, going up that very, very long escalator when Stuxnet dropped. And I said, uh, three-letter agencies. And you looked at me like, mm, really, you think so? Oh, yes, I do remember that. Yep. And that's what it's turned out to be. And I, I remember, like, it was a running joke for years, like, who wrote Stuxnet? And we'd both be like, oh, my God, get out of here with that. But um, that kind of stuff is, to me, really fascinating because there's so much of it going on. And the potential for damage from what those groups are doing is huge, but it also has to be going on. Like that's what Intel agencies do, you know, they spy spy. Yeah, that's exactly right. They gather intelligence. Otherwise they have no reason to exist. And you know, the U S is really good at it. A bunch of other countries are really good at it and they're going to keep doing it. And you know, the internet is just a platform for it. Um, so that kind of stuff is interesting to report on. Um, and, like farther down the ladder, I really like writing kind of these emerging tech stories. Like, you know, RSA is coming up in a, in a couple of weeks as we're recording this and you're not on these terrible, um, well, maybe you are, I don't know. You still get like PR pitches for RSA, but. The trick is to register the day before. I, that's always been your trick. And then you never have a hotel room or <laughs> sleep. This is also very true. But <laughs> registering for the conference the day before blocks your email from getting sent. I still get bombarded, but it, it's it slows it down. But I'm interested in like what actual applications there's going to be in security for things like AI. 
there's a whole bunch of garbage, you know, pitches. That you, they, they just throw those words in there like blockchain and AI and machine learning that, make, you know, make no sense in, in most contexts. But I'm interested to see, like, what the real authentic applications for things like AI and machine learning are for security. Um, I'm also interested in, in some of the stuff like um, our friend Dino Dizovi, his, his new company, Capsule 8, is doing yeah, containerization it, stuff. Yeah. Which to me is really fascinating, and I had a long conversation with Dino and, and John Biega about it last year at RSA, where they tried to explain it to me, and I I understood like the first two levels they were speaking about, and then they got like nine levels below that, and I was like, Hold ah. on, I, I got to give a little plug. Listen to the Security Conversations podcast with Dino Daisovi, where we dig into this a little bit as well. Oh, good. Yeah, maybe I should go back and listen to that again, so I can. Uh, <laughs> I can Come understand. on, we have I have three listeners, so <laughs> me, you, and. Trisha. I'll, take, I'll take every listen we can get. Yeah, yeah but some, I, 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 also, I podcasted with uh, Brad Arkin, and I asked him, like, oh, what yeah. are some, you know, security technologies and things you're paying attention to? And that was the first thing that came to his head as well. Uh, this, this, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, containerization is is pretty, I wouldn't say hot right now. One yeah. of the things I, I, I bum myself, I, I, I feel bummed out about is over the years, we focus so much on the sexy stories. I mean, I personally never paid a, attention to products and, and, and uh, right. technologies being built because, you know, they were just boring stories to write or you would just be writing about companies and you'd be dealing with these PR people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now in a new life, you know, uh, just paying attention to how people are solving problems on the defensive side is so interesting and you're so... So many phenomenal ideas and, and startups doing interesting things. They might not be products. They might be, you know, a feature within a bigger subset of a product. Um, yeah, uh, I agree. But, but there's, there's some fun stuff happening. And I, I, I made a note to myself to start paying attention more closely to what uh, VCs are funding, uh, what some of the startup guys are doing around AI, machine learning, uh, a lot of stuff on mobile, mobile security. It's, it, it, don't, don't, don't sleep on on that stuff. No, in the way that things are now, you know, we know a bunch of people that have founded startups and, you know, they might only have six or eight people in the whole company, but they're doing really big things. Um, you know, if they've got a good idea, they can get the funding for it and make it work. You know, it's not like the old days where you had to have, you know, go through like 12 different iterations of the idea and 50, you know, investors to get this thing up and running you know now people are spinning up startups in like two weeks bootstrapping it even without VC. yeah right yeah exactly like our our friend katie masuris who you know is doing great things with her her company luda security it's just her you know she's flying all over the world like advising people on how to deal with uh you know bug bounties and um security uh programs inside their companies and you know that's really cool. I, I'd love to see that kind of stuff happening because for, you know, we did a lot of it. Everybody does a lot of it. You focus on the offensive side because it's more interesting. You know, that hackers hacking is more interesting than hackers being stopped, you know? Right. Like, it's just it's just more, it's, it, it, it's boring to write about some uh, uh, email security thing that's managing document management. Yeah. Oh, uh, tell me but, about it. Yeah, believe me. Um, yeah, I mean, home runs are more interesting than, you know, uh, some dude making a catch on a, on a line out to second base, you know, right. or, some, or, or, or five years ago, someone saying, uh, duo is launching, doing two factor authentication and using mobile device. And be like, uh, okay. 
and yeah, you know cool. the way those guys have thought about it and integrated it with uh, across the board with multiple platforms and making two-factor authentication and multi-factor authentication kind of like the standard and one of the main things you need to advise consumers and, and enterprises to help with your password management uh, uh, processes is so crucial and huge you know look at the companies now you know they oh, wouldn't yeah. even call it a a hot company. It's just a huge company doing crazy important things. <laughs> yes, it is. And I'm very glad that we are. Believe me. Yeah. Uh, so what's next? You're heading into RSA. We're heading into RSA week next week. The, the, the GOAT rodeo is on. And then we <laughs> go to Black Hat. Do you guys have anything special planned for Black Hat? Uh, not yet. Sorry, not Black Hat, RSA. RSA, we're having a party on Wednesday night uh, during RSA week, which people can... Uh, can register for if they want they can go to decipher.se and there's um there's a link up there on the, at the top that'll allow you to register it's on Space Wednesday is limited it is limited yep oh uh God. it's a place called local edition which uh, i know you've been to it's a good spot it's really cool craft uh, beer uh, you know it of course it's <laughs> my party it's gonna be craft beer um yeah we, we'll have some jack and cokes for you if you want to get that um your fancy drinks, but uh, I, need, I need two at once. <laughs> yeah, because then you'll just sit in the corner and like sip them all night, like old man, old man style. Old man, that's right. Yeah. Anything specifically you're looking uh, to cover at RSA? Are you going there with any preconceived ideas about what you want to write about? Are you winging it, trying to figure out trends? Uh, I'm probably. Famina and I were talking about this the other day. I, I, I think I'm probably going to go to fewer talks than I usually do, just because I'm not doing like you know three pieces a day like today grind right yeah exactly i've so i've definitely got more interviews set up than i than i would have in the past um You're i've got a pretty, paul roberts oh my no 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 no, no. man I, the man with the crazy calendar his calendar looks like you know somebody spilled like condiments all over it's just like <laughs> red and green and yellow and like overlapping boxes and uh he's always <laughs> running around like a crazy man it's ridiculous it's it, so yeah I, i'm definitely like doing more you know, scheduled interviews with, but you know, only with people you want to talk to. And like, I've got a pretty cool profile that I'm working on that I'm going to uh, set up there and a bigger, longer, big picture piece that I'm going to be doing a bunch of interviews on there too. So, you know, just kind of using it as the time to reconnect with everybody that you haven't seen in a few months and, um, you know, get everybody up to speed on what we've been doing at Decipher and that kind of thing. So, no, you, you never know how the week's going to go until you get there. Well, best of luck with the project, my friend. Thanks, uh, say hello to Famida, my other good friend. And I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys continue to push out. I, Thanks. I think it's important stuff. And, 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 I, and don't limit yourself to 700 words. Just <laughs> write these things properly. It's, it's necessary. I'm on it, man. Thanks, Dennis. Thanks a lot, buddy. Appreciate it. <laughs>